I'm Bonnie Harrison and this is The Details Long Read. Today, is communal living a wiser use of resources and a counter to societal ills like loneliness? With the cost of both newly built and older homes rocketing and a lack of supply, proponents of shared or co-housing say it's time to reconsider once radical options. The author is Eric Trump, and this is an abridged version of Come Together from North and South's May issue. In Dunedin, the residents of 24 energy-efficient homes on a hill overlooking the city share a trampoline, a vegetable garden, and sometimes dinner. In Raglan, two sisters are recreating the bonds of their happy childhood by raising their own children together. In Auckland, Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke are housing their people in award-winning, architecturally designed terrace homes. All are co-housing arrangements, modern examples of communal living. Co-housing is the latest iteration of intentional living in New Zealand. At its heart, co-housing brings together private dwellings around a shared space and facilities, redefining what a neighbourhood looks like. The pleasures of privacy are braided with those of a community, one that is planned, owned and managed by the residents themselves, usually without a property developer. Existing co-housing communities, such as Co-House in Greyland, Auckland, which opened in 2021, Earthsong in the West Auckland suburb of Ranui, established in 1995, and Toy Order in Dunedin, conceived in 2013, represent a possible exit from New Zealand's current double predicament of unaffordable and shoddy housing stock. Though co-housing has not by any means gone mainstream in New Zealand, the number of projects is still low and failures probably outnumber durable successes, interest in the idea is growing. Mark Southcombe, an associate professor at Victoria University of Wellington's School of Architecture, and an expert in the history and design of co-housing, says co-housing is an arrangement whose time has come. He believes that, one day, it could compose 5-10% to 10% of New Zealand's housing sector. All we need for co-housing to make greater strides is for the right systems to be put into place so that these communities can begin and flourish, he says. The model of co-housing that interests many in New Zealand today got its start in Denmark in 1972. The idea evolved out of a desire for affordable housing and a greater sense of community than single-family homes provide. Early co-housing residents also wanted to live in a way that would protect the environment. These communities were, in theory, open to all ages and ethnicities. Through their very design, they are meant to encourage daily cooperation. Similar ideas were not unknown in Aotearoa. Many different groups of people at different times have broken off from mainstream society to forge a fresh path and make a better life in intentional communities. Literature about intentional communities points to them having at least two features in common. They are composed of five or more adults and children from more than one nuclear family, and they cohere with a purpose, a vision, or a goal. This might be living sustainably, obeying a god, or 
as was the case in the Anahata community, established in 2000 on the site of Auckland's infamous Centrepoint community, making handmade educational jigsaw puzzles. Some intentional communities here have had a more urgent and focused intent than others, namely Tino Rangatiratanga and Resistance. Parihaka in Taranaki is one. Founded by Te Fiti o Rongomai and Tohu Kākahi in the mid-1860s, it was the centre of a non-violent movement objecting to land alienation by the settler government. Members of the Parihaka community blocked surveyors from charting land that had been confiscated after war a decade earlier, which so enraged the colonial government that the settlement was brutally invaded and shut down in 1881. Following in the footsteps of Te Whiti and Tohu, in 1907, Rua Kenana founded his own religious community at Maunga Pōhatu, whose residents, the Iharaira, or Israelites, also resisted land alienation. These Māori communities of resistance were in turn an inspiration for what might be the best-known intentional community in New Zealand, the poet James K. Baxter's Jerusalem. Baxter had a vision in 1968 in which he was instructed to move to Jerusalem on the Whanganui River and there found a community where Māori and Pākehā would try to live without money or books, worship God and work on the land. This melding of Māori and Pākehā traditions Baxter called the double rainbow. Baxter's fame as a poet attracted legions of young people desperate to escape the half-gallon, quarter-acre, pavlova paradise of their parents. But the community also had a dark side, and did not last after Baxter's death in 1972. Other informal communities sprang up in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Young activist and future multi-municipalities mayor Tim Shadbolt was famously involved in a short-lived commune in Auckland, named the People's Republic of Gibraltar Crescent after his street. In 1973, the third Labour government, sensing the spirit of the times and taking inspiration from the kibbutz model in Israel, set up the Orhu scheme. This programme saw crown land leased to young people wishing to form a commune. The scheme was meant to give young New Zealanders land and housing and a chance to experiment with different social relationships while also contributing to the building of their country. It was popular, but those interested found the application process arduous and the government had trouble providing permits to isolated terrain. Eight Orhu were established, with only three remaining by 1983. Word has gradually spread. There are now seminars, workshops and conferences all around New Zealand and the world promoting co-housing and explaining it to the sceptical and the curious. From Whanganui to Whangarei, from Wellington to Christchurch, co-housing is being planned, coming into existence and working to overcome challenges. I'd say established communities are in the region of 20 to 24, says Mark Southcombe, though the number changes all the time with emerging projects. In 2019, the Housing Innovation Society held its first co-housing hui, dubbed a coho hui. Regular coho hui have followed. The next one is on the 23rd of June at Auckland University of Technology. Representatives of collective housing projects and other urban housing initiatives gave presentations at the gathering to an audience who felt disenfranchised from the current housing market. 
The Hui's founding statement acknowledged the grim reality of New Zealand's housing crisis. It reads, Housing in Aotearoa is in crisis. Whether it's housing quality, cost, or the fact that a growing number of people are living in isolation, the current approach to housing is not addressing these key issues. There's a growing appetite for new solutions. In just about every way, the Toyota High Street co-housing project is a paragon of co-housing neighbourhoods. The 24 freehold terrace homes, built around a central lawn on a 5,000 square metre piece of land, are on the site of the former High Street School, which closed in 2011. Three of the homes are in one of the old school buildings. A community of around 55 people, representing nine nationalities, live here. Architectural designer Maria Kayao is a director of SUR Architecture and with architect Tim Ross helped create Toyota. Originally from Bolivia, Kayao has been in New Zealand for 20 years. Toyota is her home. A tour of the property reveals the lush central lawn and a trampoline. The terraced houses surround the lawn on two sides, with windows facing the central common area, There's a large vegetable garden, a common house with guest rooms, a sauna, a laundry, a workshop with shared tools and a kitchen where communal meals are cooked twice a week. A small parking lot has a charging station for electric vehicles. Just don't call us a commune, says Kayao. We are a community with our own houses. You don't have to join everyone else for dinner if you don't feel like it. That she feels obliged to point this out is understandable. Despite Toyota's tidy paths, swept porches and general sense of order, for some the scent of patchouli and the jangle of love beads still linger when the topic of communal life comes up. Neighbours hearing about a prospective co-housing development might well wonder if a new Tim Shadbolt at Huia-style republic was on the way. The memory of the 1960s and 70s did taint the recently built Buckley Road co-housing project in Wellington. Their own real estate agent, not knowing what else to call them, referred to them as a cult, says Mark Southcombe. Kayao is used to this. Some people get scared when they hear co-housing, as though hippies were coming, she says. Toyota had its beginnings at a public meeting on co-housing in Dunedin in 2013. The meeting included a workshop by Robin Allison, one of the visionaries behind Earthsong, a well-known and enduring co-housing community in Auckland. After the meeting, eight shareholders, unknown to each other beforehand, joined forces to look for land. The High Street school site was owned by Ngaitahu, and it was on the market. We had to come up with almost a million dollars quickly, so we found more people to join us, says Kayao of the purchase. Determined, the group pulled it off, and High Street was theirs. After that came the real work. The shareholders met every two weeks in the former schoolhouse on the property, held workshops and thrashed out all the issues. Kayao and Ross proffered design after design for living quarters. What did people want? What were their priorities? We had to work out the details first, find consensus, do the calculations. Then we had to find people to fill the homes. Some people dropped out along the way as the planning and resource consent went on, 
taking five years. In the process, the toy order shareholders fashioned what is known in co-housing as a vision statement, their version of a constitution. It was composed through group effort and calls for a robust eco-design and layout that will establish a cohesive community that fosters well-being, diversity and the right use of resources. The statement also emphasises the social environment and the use of communication that promotes tolerance, safety, respect and cooperation. In the end, Kayao says everything was more expensive than we'd planned. We tried bringing costs down to allow for economic diversity. It would have been great to help a refugee family. All in, the price tag for the build was $12 million. The triple-glazed windows alone, imported from Germany, were $500,000. Finally, in 2021, Toy Order welcomed its inhabitants to their new houses, all built, or, in the case of the existing buildings, renovated, to exacting passive design standards. Securing financing was perhaps the most arduous obstacle for Toy Order to overcome, one that has stymied other co-housing efforts, such as the proposed Cambridge co-housing project in Waikato. Those involved dreamed of a multi-generational community and affordable housing, according to the development's website. However, they were forced out by a neighbouring development company with deep pockets. The district council built a road over their land, and as a result, we have given up, the website says. Another co-housing fantasy that fizzled recently was the Urban Habitat Collective in Wellington. It began gestation five years ago, a group of 40 people planning to live in 25 units in two buildings. The group had a site, plans and building consents. Then building costs shot into the stratosphere away from our budget, says Bronwyn Newton, a lawyer and community planner. In August 2020, the cost of construction was estimated to be $12.2 million. Four months later, it had risen to $14.7 million. We tried to reduce costs, but the next time we looked, they were at $17 million, she says. Then their chosen construction company walked away. I don't recommend trying to build multi-unit, multi-generational housing during a pandemic, says Newton. COVID or not, Newton said other intractable obstacles stood in the collective's way, as they do for others. More and more people may want to live in co-housing, but the legal and financial frameworks to encourage it are not in place. The environment is inhospitable. There are more hurdles to jump over. Local districts don't accommodate this kind of housing. Banks tried to be reasonable and gave us support, just not much practical support. Auckland urban planner Hamish Firth thinks a snowball effect will help projects like Newton's come to actuality in the future. The more familiar co-housing becomes, the more familiar they are to banks and the easier it'll be to borrow money. The more co-housing there is, the more we'll see. While Auckland is intensifying to cope with a high-demand, low-stock housing market, Firth observes that, in general, banks are not fully understanding, yet, of co-housing. Banks have been doing the same thing for a hundred years. They are risk-averse. They'd rather you hire a project manager for $250,000 than do it yourself. They create hurdles to test the determination of the group. 
the problem is familiar to Fano and Hapu around New Zealand. For decades, communally owned Māori land has remained underdeveloped due to banks' declining finance. Solutions are slowly being found as the need and yearning grows for bespoke, healthy and culturally nourishing papakainga, a Māori form of co-housing. Papakainga initiatives have sprung up in the past decades for some of the same reasons as other co-housing projects, but from a situation of even greater housing stress and with extra pull factors such as ancestral connections to whenua. With finance remaining a problem, some iwi organisations have stepped in, as was the case for Kainga Tuatahi, a 30-home urban kainga in Orake, Auckland. The particular challenges for Papa Kainga are one issue that will no doubt be canvassed at the Kohohui at AUT this June. Both Bronwyn Newton and Mark Southcombe are also speaking. They will address the legal and financial barriers to co-housing to ensure more people can form co-housing communities with greater ease than now. Southcombe is puzzled by the reluctance of banks and local regulators to get on board. These communities tend to be stable and affluent. Also, since they're not building for a profit, the buildings tend to be high quality and sustainable. They're actually low risk. Instead of treating them like halfway houses or commercial buildings, treat them as residences. The difficulty with co-housing seems to be knowing how to make it happen. Newton said it sometimes felt like going in circles. Either you've got the land and no group, or a group of people and no land, she says. It can take a long time to launch, and in the meantime, people lose interest or have to get on with their lives. Earthsong is the community most often cited as a model for co-housing. The eco-neighbourhood is a community of 32 homes on 1.2 hectares that has been running for almost three decades. One of its co-founders, architect Robin Allison, wrote 2020's Co-Housing for Life, which is, like another manual, Creating Co-Housing, a revered guidebook for how to create a community that is socially and environmentally cohesive. Allison sees healthy housing as a human right, and Earthsong as the project of my life. Why should we have just one option dominated by the land developer? We can do better, she says. Since larger combined housing projects like Earthsong require great determination and resilience, as well as money, some families and friends are striking out on their own to combine resources and achieve community and home ownership on a slightly smaller scale, without a vision statement or a detailed plan. Toy Orders people felt fortunate to have found each other and a plot of land. They were resilient and in the end secured a loan for their $12 million dream. The conditions set by the bank were stringent. A 35% deposit and 10% contingency, which are unusually high. They also had to sell 22 units off the plan before building could begin. Then, those buying in had to secure mortgages for individual homes. Everyone was getting turned down for mortgages, which had us all worried. In the end, the bank asked us to remove the word co-housing from their property covenant, Kayao says. These days, the foundational battle scars are barely visible, as though Toyota had been a part of the neighbourhood all along. With its well-designed homes and established gardens, it resembles a stylized marquette 
of a happy neighbourhood. When you live here, you don't just buy a place to live, you buy a neighbourhood, says Jessica Ross, a resident since 2018. Ross is a relief teacher, married to James, also a teacher, and mother of two children, Grace and Lucy. They live next door to James's parents. It's great. The children have their grandparents in their lives. We've also got built-in daycare. If James's parents aren't available, Toy Order has surrogate grandparents who can help out. The oldest resident is 84, the youngest 18 months. This is Ross's first home, and she feels it would be difficult to live anywhere else after Toy Order. This has a lot to do with the web of relationships. We have a pool of knowledge here that we share. If a tap leaks or you need a shelf built, there's probably someone here who can help, she says. Not that it's easy. The hardest part is reaching consensus. The meetings can be long, views differing, negotiation arduous. But residents say it is always worth it. When 50 people live together, concerns and questions come up all the time. For many residents, co-housing is more than just a socially healthy place to live, it's physically healthy too. Numerous studies have shown relationships can aid cognition in ageing brains and help curb the depredations of depression. Co-housing may not be for everyone. Some will forever dream of a McMansion in a fenced field or a bunker on the shores of Lake Wanaka, but in today's New Zealand, it may be an idea whose time has come, or come again, given the history of communal living here. You might think of co-housing as communal living with a good dose of realpolitik, or a practical utopia. That word, utopia, is meant to be a pun. One definition is no place, the unreal, the impossible. The other, utopia, is good place. For the people who raised Toyota out of the ground, this is the good place. That was Come Together by Eric Trump, published in the May issue of North and South. The details long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with a new long read. Kaki te anō.